Well, it's hard to overestimate, I think, um, the importance of hope to the human spirit. Hope is a very, very important. To the long-term sick patient in hospital, hope plays a vital part in them recovering. To the long-distance runner, hope plays a vital part in them finishing the race, having their eyes to the finish, their eyes on what is to come. I guess in the tragedy, the absolute tragedy of suicide, more often than not, it's the lack of hope that drives someone to such a desperate decision. Hope. Of course, in the deep things of life, hope is so important because our present is often so difficult. Life is a struggle, isn't it? We struggle with things around us. We struggle with things inside us. Life is hard. And if that was all that there is, we would quickly, I think, sink into crippling despair. And I guess the, uh, in the Bible, the classic description of such hopelessness is the book of Ecclesiastes, with the, with the writer's search for the deep things of life, only to keep bumping up against meaninglessness and despair. And life under the sun, the teacher concludes, is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. It's hopeless. It's full of despair. But of course, we know, don't we, that there is life other than just under the sun. There is life, of course, with the Lord God at the very center of it. There is life fearing God and obeying his word. And that, of course, is the true life of hope. It's why Christians are characterized and recognized by our genuine Hope. We are people of hope. We are people of living hope. Lasting, true, confident hope. Because we belong to someone who is bigger and better than the most difficult, troublesome present. The Lord God. But of course, too often, it's the difficult, troublesome present. It's the crisis. It's the enduring disappointment. It's the ongoing hardship. It's the pain and the sorrow. It's the confusion. It's those things that so often cause us to be distracted from the Lord of hope, to take our eyes from him and become consumed by despair and hopelessness. It's all too hard. I don't want to keep struggling. I want to give up. I want to give in. It's all too much, and we begin to sink. I wonder if you can connect it all with what I'm describing there. I wonder if that matches your experience sometimes. Maybe that's even you this morning. I don't know about that, I guess, but I do know that we constantly have to have our gaze raised, raised up from our present troublesome Uh, difficult times now in the present and back onto the Lord God who is the center and source of true hope and our passage uh, this morning in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 does exactly that so it'd be great to have your Bible open at 1 Samuel chapter 1 Uh, there's an outline of the talk on the inside of your bulletin and I'm going to pray once more and ask the Lord to help us Help us, please, Father, 
Give us hope, true hope, centered on you, please. Raise our eyes above our difficult, troublesome presence and put them onto you. Amen. Well, if you open up to 1 Samuel, it's uh, helpful to know that in doing that, we actually jump into the storyline of the Bible at a dark time. Good to know that the Bible has a storyline. Don't know how familiar you are with your Bible, but the Bible has a storyline. It moves forward. And when we jump into 1 Samuel, we're in a dark time of that storyline. It's a time of, in fact, great godlessness. It's a time of chaos. It's a time of apparent hopelessness. Let me sort of give it the context a little bit. The people of Israel, who are the descendants of Abraham, the people through whom God had promised and determined to work out his purposes and plans for the entire world, the people of Old Testament Israel, Israel, sorry, they are in the land that God had promised to give them. Behind them, earlier in the storyline, if you like, is their slavery in Egypt, and then their wandering in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, and then their occupation of the land of Canaan under Joshua. After Joshua, though, their history uh, in the land um, quickly became one of struggle and disobedience and idolatry. And we can read about that in the book of Judges. As a nation, they repeatedly abandoned their saviour Lord and pursued the gods of the nations around them. And so in the book of Judges, in judgment, the Lord hands them over to their enemies, to the Philistines, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, and so on. All in all, it's a really dark period of Israel's history as they sort of stumble from one disaster to the next, from one evil to even greater evil. And so the final chapters of the book of Judges are some of the most terrible to read in the whole Bible. And in fact, the final sentence of the book of Judges, the close of that book, just before 1 Samuel opens, really couldn't be more hopeless. We read there at the last sentence of the book of Judges, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. It's a time of chaos. It's a time of great godlessness. It's a time of apparent hopelessness. And so fittingly, perhaps, as 1 Samuel opens, we are introduced to what appears to be a hopeless woman. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 1 with me. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Benina had children, but Hannah had none. Judges closes, the book of Judges closes with like a big picture summary of the state of the nation. It's hopeless, seemingly hopeless. One Samuel, though, opens focused on an individual family, and in particular, a woman, Hannah, who all we're told about her is that she has no children. But in fact, as we'll see, Hannah's situation really reflects the state of the nation. Hannah's childlessness was in fact more than what we might think it was. And I know that some among us have struggled or or still struggle with childlessness. You'd like to have children, but for whatever reason you don't. 
And that absence of children brings lots of sorrow and anxiety and longing. And it's made especially difficult as others around you have children, even multiple children. And you want to rejoice with them, but it's hard for your rejoicing not to be tinged with disappointment or even resentment or even anger. To want children and to not have them is a very difficult thing in our context. But Hannah's childlessness had an, had an extra dimension, an extra dimension that we don't have. Hannah belonged to the old covenant people of God. She dwelt in the physical land of promise, a land in which God had promised blessing with obedience to his word, a blessing that included blessing the wombs of the women. The Lord promised in the book of Deuteronomy that if they listened to the word of God, if they trusted and obeyed his word, none of them would be childless. He would love them, bless them and multiply them. And so Hannah's childlessness, you see, had a particular theological dimension, a spiritual dimension to it that our childlessness today does not. Her childlessness is part of the bigger picture of disobedience and curse that Israel as a whole nation was struggling under. Her childlessness was part of this grim picture of hopelessness of this time. And Hannah feels the weight of her situation very keenly. Especially, it would seem, when each year the family would travel to Shiloh, to the temple there, to offer sacrifices. Let's read of it in verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Hannah's situation is terrible, isn't it? Seemingly a hopeless situation. She is childless with a husband who loved her, but with a rival, Penina, that provoked her, that took any opportunity she could to rub her face in her hopeless situation. It's a very human situation, isn't it? It's one that is very easy to imagine. It is terrible and it's tragic. And so Hannah was unable to eat. Instead, she just wept. She just wept in her deep distress and sorrow. It's a seemingly hopeless portrait. But you know, not only did Hannah weep, she also prayed. Verse 9. Once... When they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Friends, please notice with me what a helpful model Hannah is to us here. Her suffering is very, very deep. Her despair is immense. And in her despair, in her sorrow, 
In her suffering, she prays to the Lord. Out of her great anguish and grief, she prays in her heart. She pours out her soul to the Lord. Back in verse 5, we're told that it was the Lord who had closed her womb. And so to the Lord, Hannah goes in prayer. Which is a strange response in some ways, don't you think? Perhaps a more sensible response might be to shun the Lord who had closed her womb, to hate him, to curse him. That's certainly the response of many people in the face of tragedy or pain or sorrow. But Hannah's response is the response of faith. She prays to the very same Lord Almighty who has closed her womb. She prays to the Lord who is all-powerful. She prays to the Lord who is well able to help her. She prays to the Lord assuming that he might be willing to help her. For Hannah is convinced, you see, that the Lord is almighty and powerful and strong, but he's not just powerful and strong. He is good and compassionate and merciful. That's what she assumes. And Hannah is a great example for us to follow. And you know what? Maybe even now things are happening or not happening in your life which have caused you or perhaps are tempting to cause you to turn away from the Lord, to look elsewhere. Maybe you are angry with the Lord for what he has done or what he hasn't done. Maybe you are disappointed with the Lord. Maybe you are confused with the Lord. Can I encourage you to follow Hannah's lead? Pour out your soul to him. Weep before him. For yes, he is strong and he is mighty. But he's also good and compassionate and merciful. Hannah, you see, she is desperately sad. And so she prays. And the words of Hannah's prayer are stunning. Verse 11. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, If you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Please notice Hannah's assumption there in her prayer. Hannah assumes that the Lord Almighty enthroned in heaven might look down upon the distress of some childless woman in Shiloh. The Lord Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, might look upon Hannah in her lowly state. That is a stunning assumption, don't you think? And of course, one that is absolutely right. That's exactly what the Lord God is like. He cares for his people and he invites even you to cast your anxieties onto him. That is a great privilege, don't you think? To take our burdens to the Lord in prayer, a great privilege. Yeah, a great privilege. Hannah prays. If you were to keep reading, you discover that after correcting the priest Eli, who thought she was a drunk, she heads back home to Ramah. And as the readers of 1 Samuel, you know, we want to know what's going to happen next. Not just because we want a happy ending, but because what's at stake is more than just Hannah. 
For if Hannah's dark situation, her childlessness, if that is part of the bigger, darker situation of Israel, then whatever the Lord might do for Hannah will reflect what he might do for the whole nation. And that should matter to even us here in Dubbo because it's through this nation that God has determined to promise, sorry, determined and promised to work out his plans and purposes for the worlds. And so we read with great interest and bated breath, really. What will the Lord do in this seemingly hopeless situation and this seemingly hopeless woman and this seemingly hopeless prayer? Point two in your outline and verse 19. Halfway through verse 19, we read, Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. I wonder what you would, if I asked you what the key phrase of those two verses were, I wonder what you'd choose. The key phrase. You know, it's not Hannah conceived. Oh, that's pretty great. It's not gave birth to a son, although that too is pretty great. The key phrase, the key truth of those verses is the Lord remembered her. Back in verse 11, if you have a glance, you'll see that in her prayer, Hannah pleaded with the Lord Almighty that he might remember her in her sorrow and affliction. And he did. The Lord Almighty remembered this poor, sorrowful woman. And it's not that he'd forgotten her. It's not that uh, one day the Lord came came across a misplaced to-do list with Hannah's name on it. Didn't work like that. When the Bible talks about the Lord remembering, it's that he deliberately brings Hannah to mind and acts on her behalf. The Lord Almighty answered her prayer. And where once there seemed to be no hope at all, Suddenly hope dawned. Verse 20, she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Who can imagine the joy that Hannah felt as she held her newborn baby boy? The boy she'd asked the Lord for. The boy that the Lord had granted her. Samuel. The Lord had remembered her and her asking. And so Hannah remembered her vow to the Lord. Verse 24. Verse 24. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Back in verse 11, remember, Hannah made a vow to the Lord that she would give um, the son she was asking for over to the Lord all the days of his life. Back there in verse 11, when she said no razor would ever be used on his head, that was to be a symbol of his separation of his having been dedicated to the Lord. And here we read of her keeping that vow. 
Samuel is weaned, which might mean he's as old as three years of age. And at that time, Hannah presented to him, uh, presented Samuel to Eli the priest in the temple of the Lord at Shiloh, so that Samuel might serve the Lord all his life. And as we'll discover in the chapters to follow, and I want to encourage you to do some reading ahead because it's great, we'll discover that Samuel has a very important role to play indeed. But I guess before we get to that, we actually might be stuck on the bit, you know, on the cost to Hannah at this point. I mean, when we consider the bitterness of her grief at being childless, the misery of her soul back then, and now here she has the child of her asking, he's only three years old, and she gives him up. Surely that must have been incredibly difficult for Hannah. It's not as if she couldn't see him. They would still live in the same region of Ephraim, but she wouldn't have him in her house. Think of all the things she wouldn't see. Think of all the things that she wouldn't be a part of in his life. Must have been incredibly hard, I reckon. And yet, you know what? We read none of that here. No hint of despair. No hint of regret at the vow she made. No hint of her going back on her vow. Why might that be? It's not that Hannah is hard-hearted or an unloving mother. That's clearly not the case. Her contentment in giving her son over to the Lord is the fruit of her knowledge of the Lord, her trust in the Lord, her delight in the Lord. This is the Lord Almighty who listened to the weeping of a lone childless woman. Hannah knew she could entrust her son to him gladly. And although, as we're going to see, Samuel had a unique place in God's plan and purposes, although Samuel is no ordinary child, there's still a lesson on the way through here, surely for us who are parents. There's a genuine sense, you know, in which all of us should give over our children to the Lord. It doesn't mean we pack them off to Shiloh to live in the temple with priests. But we ought to genuinely and seriously hand them over to the Lord for him to do with as he chooses. As parents, you see, our ambitions for our children, surely they must be the Lord's ambitions. And you know what? The Lord may not want them to be a doctor. He may not want them to go to university. He may even not want them to get married. He may not want to give you grandchildren. He may not want them to have a successful career in the, world, in the eyes of the world. He may not want them to own a house. He may not want them to live in Australia. That may not be the Lord's ambitions for your children. I tell you what he does want. He wants them to seek first his kingdom. He wants them to love him and the Lord Jesus more than anything else, more than anyone else, even more than you. He wants them to be servants of others. He wants them to be fearless proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus. He wants them to shun the idolatry of wealth and he would want them to be content with just food and clothing. He wants them to pursue holiness and godliness and wisdom. And the question is, are we parents okay with that? The question is for us who are parents, are you concerned more than anything else that your kids know and love the word of God? Does that matter more to you than them finishing their homework 
or doing well in their assignments, does it matter more to you than them getting a good HSC score? The question is, will you be disappointed if in 20 years' time your kids are poor? They don't own a house, they're not married, but they're serving Jesus with great humility and zeal. Will that cause you great joy? I think it's important that as parents we ponder prayerfully and carefully our ambitions for our kids. Because too often, you know what, we aim too low. But not Hannah. She aimed as high as she could for her son. She remembered her vow. She gave Samuel over to the Lord Almighty. And she did it with rejoicing. She did, did it with delight. She did it with hope because of who the Lord is. And we can hear her joy. We can hear her delight. We can hear her hope in her prayer in chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2, that Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Aren't they great words? You know what, because Hannah is so great in chapter 1, and she really is great, because she is so admirable, it's easy to fall into the trap of being distracted by her, by her faith, by her trust, by her wisdom. But you know what? Hannah herself is clear, really clear where our attention should be as we read 1 Samuel 1 and 2. She doesn't want the spotlight on her. She wants the spotlight fully and firmly on the Lord. She tells us, doesn't she? There is no one holy like him. He is incomparable. There is no one who can come close to him. There is no rock like our God. That is a great phrase, I reckon. And you know what? That truth should sound a warning to the arrogant. Maybe Hannah had in mind Penina, her rival. I'm not sure, but it applies to all the arrogant. Verse 3, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. That is both a comforting and a terrifying statement, don't you think? The Lord knows. Whatever it is, big or small, the Lord knows. He knows. And you know what? He weighs deeds. He measures what we do. He evaluates what we do. He judges what we do. And because he is the Lord Almighty, he acts on what he knows. Verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many pines away. See the theme of those verses? The Lord acts and he acts to bring reversal. He acts to turn things on their heads. He acts to reverse the ways of this world, if you like. The full become hungry. The hungry becomes full. As Hannah herself had experienced, the childless bears children. Where there seems no hope, the Lord can bring hope. The Lord can do anything. Even death and life is within his power. Verse 6, the Lord brings death. The Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave. He raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles. He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. 
He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world's. It's a great description of the Lord in these verses. We ought to ponder these things more at home. The Lord is the Lord Almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He has incomparable power. And you know what? He acts on behalf of his people. Needy people. Downtrodden people. Poor people. He humbles the so-called exalted, and yet he exalts the humble. Like Hannah. And as we've seen that played out in the life of Hannah, you know what, that gives us hope. It ought to give us, give us hope for the wider picture of Israel and indeed the wider picture of the world. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Friends, the Lord Almighty, he's not impotent or weak or passive. He established the foundations of the earth and he rules the world. And because he rules, there is no hope for any who might oppose him. No one can stand against the Lord and survive his fearsome wrath. And we'll see that clearly in the chapters to follow in the coming weeks. And indeed, these verses of Hannah anticipate much of what's to come. But because the Lord rules, there is great and lasting hope for those who belong to him. And that hope is to be found centered in his king. Did you see? His anointed one, the Christ, the one who rules on his behalf. Blessed are all those who take their refuge in him. Hannah was in a seemingly hopeless situation, but her confidence rested rightly in the Lord of hope. The Lord Almighty remembered even her. And brothers and sisters, we need to share in Hannah's confidence in the Lord. These truths that Hannah shares, they are still true. But of course, in a real way, they are even more true for us, aren't they? We have even more reason for such confidence that Hannah had because we know things of the Lord now in our point in the, in the storyline of the Bible, if you like. We know things of the Lord that would have dazzled Hannah. As Hannah prayed this prayer, remember, there was no king in Israel, but that would soon change. We'll see it change as we read. And Hannah's Samuel would have a very important role to play in that. We'll see in this book of 1 Samuel, the Lord through Samuel, choosing for himself a king to rule on his behalf, a king to bring hope to his people. And in this book of 1 Samuel, that king is David. But even he was just a forerunner to the ultimate king, the ultimate source of hope for this world. And you know what? Although she didn't know it, Hannah in her prayer was anticipating with joy the everlasting reign of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the ultimate anointed one. At just the right time, in the same way that the Lord remembered Hannah, the Lord remembered his promise to Abraham to bring blessing through his family to the worlds. 
And so another ordinary family, Joseph and Mary, received an even more extraordinary baby, Jesus. The Lord sent his son to be its savior king into the world. Hannah gave up her son, Samuel, to the Lord. That is nothing. The Lord gave up his son for us. The king has come to bring hope to this world. The king has come and he has conquered death and sin. The very things that are at the heart of all that makes our presence so difficult and so troublesome. Death and sin, they have been conquered. In his death and his resurrection, Christ Jesus has conquered them all. And so there is hope in him, living hope, for he is our risen saviour king. In him we have peace with God. In him we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our confidence, folks, is grounded in what the Lord has already done for us. He didn't spare even his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How could we possibly doubt the future? Nothing can separate us from the love that he has for us in Christ Jesus. The hope we have in him will never be disappointed because he has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And yes, life now will inevitably be difficult. This world still groans with brokenness and sin. Our present will be troublesome and difficult. But like Hannah, but even more so, we look to the Lord of hope, don't we? We cry out to him. We pour out our heart to him, knowing that he is graciously at work for for the good of those who love him. What a privilege. We look at all that he's done for us. And in confidence, we pour our hearts out to him. Brothers and sisters, we need to lift our eyes above our troubled, difficult, uncertain present and focus again on the Lord of hope, the father of our savior, King Jesus. And I want to suggest a prayer for us to pray for ourselves and for each other. I came across it in my Bible reading this week. Isn't it great? You know, when you read the Bible and you, you read a bit of the Bible, you're sure you've read countless times before, but just this time something really jumps out. You know what I'm talking about? That happened this week. It's a fantastic prayer that the Apostle Paul gave to the Thessalonian Christians. And I've just flogged it. And I've put it on your outline. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let me read it for you. How's this for a great prayer that we might pray for each other? Not just today, but perhaps during the week. May our Lord Christ Jesus himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. That's a great prayer, isn't it? That's a prayer I'm sure Hannah would gladly endorse. And I'd like to pray it for us now, but I'd encourage you to keep praying it. I'd love you to pray it for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God our Father, you've loved us and by your grace you've given us eternal encouragement and good hope. We ask please that in our present, our difficult, troublesome, uncertain present, we pray that you might encourage our hearts, that you might strengthen us 
in every good deed and word. Help our hope to be in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.